This Week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay Review, Phase Shifter by Red Cross. The, the band that every band, everybody in a band wants to be like. That, the guitars are pretty epic sounding out this. They're able to capture just that sense of fun. Their label at the time, Big Time Records. Was it run by Johnny Moneybags? Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Jason Ziak. Jay. Yes. Every other episode, I ask this question, what are you drinking? Oh, tonight I have a Hofbra, or Brow, Oktoberfest. It's, uh, it's pretty damn tasty. Nice. It's kind of a lager, but it's got a little bit of a hoppy kind of thing going on, but not too much. I am nice. uh, enjoying a Modelo. Not a no. Negro Modelo, but a just a uh, regular old... Modelo Especial from the fine folks in Mexico. You got, got against the Negra. I, nothing. I just didn't buy it this week. Da, da, da. I'm not a racist. But I'll tell you who are. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, let's get on to... <laughs> let's get into this band because uh, this is going to be an interesting one. Really? Yeah, I think so. We have a lot to talk about. Hmm. We're going to talk about Red Cross. Jay, were you familiar with Red Cross before we reviewed this yes okay i wasn't i gave you the cd so are the mp3s yes you did i had <laughs> never listened to a single note of red cross before reviewing this album they're kind of a uh you'll get you'll get into the full history but they're sort of a weird band where i think pockets of people know them very well and other pockets are completely unaware yes that's a good way of putting they, it a very long history, so there's many opportunities to kind of run into them. So let's get into the history of the band. History of the band. Red Cross formed in 1978 in Hawthorne, California, originally called The Tourists. They were started by Jeff and Steve McDonald. While they were still brothers, while they were still brothers, while they were, <laughs> they've always been brothers, while they were still in middle school, is what I meant to say. Uh, they were joined by friends Greg Hetson and Dave Keller on guitar, John Stylo on drums, and their first gig was opening for Black Flag. So, in middle school, Jay, were you in a rock band? No, not until high school. Not until high school, okay. Middle schools, that's that's pretty uh, pretty kick-ass. By the time uh, the 80s rolled around, specifically 1980, they released a self-titled EP and they changed their name to Red Cross, but the more traditional spelling of R-E-D-C-R-O-S-S. The original drummer, John Silo, left, replaced by Ron Ray's guitarist. Greg Hetson left to join the Circle Jerks and later uh, Bad Religion. And the other guitarist, Keller, joined a band called Trixie and the Doorknobs, which is not as famous as Black Flag, which uh, Ron Ray's, the drummer, left for. Of the all, all the bands mentioned, The Circle Jerks, Bad Religion, Black Flag, and Trixie and the Doorknobs. I am not familiar with Trixie and the Doorknobs, although we might end up doing a review of their album sometime in the future if they have one from the 90s. So their first album, Born Innocent, came out. I'm not going to go through the rest. There's a lot of lineup changes after this. Let's just be honest. Yeah, there are two main lineups to the band. I think you, you basically need to do the uh, Third Eye album 
and the two before that, that's kind of one lineup, and then the two, the one we're going to review, and the album after that are another lineup. Right. The others don't so, matter. So, around this time, they received a uh, lawsuit notice from the International Red Cross regarding their name, and they changed it to Red Cross spelled R-E-D-D-K-R-O-S-S, supposedly inspired by the famous comedian Red Fox from Stanford and Stone. They recorded the album Teen Babes from Monsanto, which featured covers by Kiss, David Bowie, The Rolling Stones, Shangri-Las. That was in 1984. They toured. They uh, recruited Roy McDonald on drums, formerly of The Things, and no relation to the Brothers McDonald already in the band. In 1987, they released Neurotica, which was influenced, supposedly, by Saturday morning cartoons and breakfast cereals. Their label at the time, Big Time Records, Big Time, <laughs> folded. and the what? How could Big Time Records fold? I know. And <laughs> Was it run by Johnny Moneybags? It's like the record label from Dick Tracy. So they continued to tour, and in between failure of big time records and their next record the mcdonald's teamed with pat fear of white flag and michael kierso kierso i don't know of three o'clock and formed the tater tots released the album alien sleestacks from brazil a title which was a tribute to the tv show land of lost it included cover songs by such people as queen yoko ono the Beatles, and included a guest vocal by Danny Baradouche. Yes, that Danny Baradouche. They released two more albums as the Tater Tots. In 1990, Red Cross signed with Atlantic Records to release Third Eye. This is the album that you mentioned. And included the single Annie's Gone. It had some mild college radio success. Um, and drummer Jack Irons, future of Pearl Jam, formerly of Red Hot Chili Peppers, joined the band for the Third Eye Tours. They got some light MTV rotation. Brian Reitzel succeeded Irons as drummer. At this point, the guitarist Robert Hecker left the band, and Eddie Kurdzil, Gene Fennelly, and Brian Reitzel joined the band for Phase Shifter, which is the album we're reviewing, which came out in 1993. They toured for a year, headlining shows, as well as t supporting the Lemonheads and Spin Doctors in 93, Stone Temple Pilots in 94. In 1995, Jeff McDonald and his wife, Charlotte Caffey of the Go-Go's, had a daughter named Astrid, for those who are um, interested in such things. 1997, Red Cross then returned with Show World. Produced by Chris Shaw, who also did albums for Weezer and Soul Asylum. They supported the President of the United States on tour. And after the Show World tour, they took an indefinite hiatus, which was followed two years later by the death of guitarist Eddie Kurdzow. Uh, they, were, they were separated until 2006 when the Neurotica era lineup of Jeff and Steve McDonald, Robert Hecker, and Roy McDonald performed 
at Disney Hall Los Angeles, a career-spanning set. Um, they've gone on to play random shows here and there, um, playing the entire Born Innocent album, opening for Sonic Youth at the Greek Theater, toured Spain and England in 2007. They played a number of one-off shows, including the 2008 Coachella and the Pitchfork Festival, ATP vs. Pitchfork Festival in Sussex, England. In 2010, they headlined the, headlined the Turbo Rock Festival in Spain. And it is rumored that the band is recording new material. So there are some um, interesting little side notes. As I mentioned, Jeff McDonald is married to Charlotte Caffey from the Go-Go's. Steve McDonald is married to Anna Wanaker, who is in That Dog, and whose brother is Joey Wanaker, who is a, a pretty, like, well-regarded drummer. I believe he's played with a lot of bands. Hasn't he uh, done some session work with a bunch of people, Jay? You know? Uh, yeah. I, I, his name's really familiar. Let's see. I get him and Kenny Aronoff confused. That's true. Those drummers for hire are getting mixed up sometimes. Steve McDonald formed the Steve McDonald Group and did an online-only art project called Red Blood Cells in which he added a bass track to every song on the White Stripes album White Blood Cells. You remember that when he did that? Yep. That was pretty cool. Robert Hecker teaches sixth grade science and physical education at Hermosa Valley School in Hermosa Beach and as well as track at Palos Verdes Peninsula High School. And he looks like a guy that would teach science and track. <laughs> Be uh, like if uh, my high school track and science teacher, Mr. Kemp, was in a band. And uh, those who went to um, <laughs> Admiral King will get that. Right? You what? Went to, you went to Admiral King, right? God, no. Oh, that's where Katie went, my wife. I'm sorry. Where did you go to high school? Amherst, Marion L. Steele. Sorry. Jeez, terrible king. Jeez. Sorry, sorry, whoa. Uh, just a few last notes. Red Cross songs appear on various soundtracks, such as PCU, An American Werewolf in Paris, Varsity Blues, Bordello of Blood, and Good Burger. Um, they were in a movie, too, and that's one of the ways I found out about them. Yes, they were. They are in a movie called Spirit of 76 with... Uh, it's directed by Alison Anders. Uh, yeah. Play members of Matt Dillon's Beach Boy-esque rock band, Grace of My yeah. Heart. It's a very strange movie. I caught it on cable back in the ni- early 90s, I think, or whenever it came out. And last but not least, Stephen McDonald plays bass with the band OFF. I say it that way because it's O-F-F, all capital with an ex- exclamation point, which features Keith Morris of The Circle Jerks, amongst other people. So, that's the history of uh, Red Cross. When I was researching this band, uh, I found an interesting article, December 3rd, 1993, Entertainment Weekly. And it was titled, This is the Most Important Band in America? Question mark. So how come you've <laughs> never heard of Red Cross? So Jay, how come before tonight I had never heard, well that's not true, I've heard of them, but I had never heard red cross and mm. think people need to listen to red cross do i think mm-hmm. that's my question Chad. 
Well, yeah, of course. Uh, why you haven't heard of them? They, they're a peculiar band. First off, they are a California, LA area band, right? Mm-hmm. Which I think has led to them having many strange and uh, fortunate opportunities of being movies, play with different people, have a billion different side projects. So in some ways, that's allowed some people to, to find out about them. I think why they never broke through, which is, this is like the last segment of the show, not the first. I think in general, the reason they, ne- they never broke through is that they have they don't fit perfectly in one genre. They sort of bend between being hyper pop to being pretty, to being punk, to being, uh, it's, you know, in some ways, very heavy rock, almost metal-ish. And those three things... Um, from a fan base standpoint kind of tend to oppose each other i think Mm -hmm. it's a similar situation that um uh ginger from the wild hearts has always had so like i would say he's a similar kind of artist where other musicians know of him and think he's you know many 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 musicians think he's one of the best songwriters that exist that is alive right now in terms of rock and roll and, and even pop music but he is unable to sort of find a a niche where he fits in because in the same way as them his songs are very very hooky and um melodic and very pop oriented but they're usually delivered in a very loud hard rock you know way with over the top guitars and and i think for some people it's sort of you know they're not a metal band even though they kind of sound like a metal band but they don't go over with metal audiences because the songs are so bubblegum so it's kind of they 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 sit in a very peculiar spot but i think what's cool about them is that i think you've illustrated by going through the history starting with them in middle school till now which they're both still very active they're rock and roll lifers like there's kind of guys that are going to do this until the day that they probably die and like they figure out a way to make a living from it and they got they're prolific. They write tons of songs, tons of music. They're in all kinds of different projects. Um, so in in some ways, you know, I think it's okay. At least it's not, I don't think it's a knock against them that, you know, they weren't some big commercial success. Um, I think they're still significant in the aspect of they keep, they keep at it. And I think as songwriters, they're, they're pretty damn good at times. So that's my take on sort of their peculiar history and maybe why people don't know them that well. You mentioned, you know, their sort of disparate influences. I, I read a, a quote that I'm going to steal and not attribute to the person who said it, but they basically said that Red Cross is Kiss filtered through the Archies in the middle of the California desert. And I think that that is like the most apropos description of this band. Like, they are a totally... 70s arena rock loving band that wants to write bubblegum pop but do it in a really psychedelic weird way i imagine like josh home from queens of the stone age and various bands is probably a fan of these guys because they can just as easily you know produce a huge cheap trick-esque power pop chorus but then they combine it with 
Um, I'm thinking of like the end of track three, Monolith, which has this weird multi-level like string and keyboard and vocal harmony ending that's kind of psychedelic but kind of pop. Spectre. Yeah, it's Phil Spector, but within a two and a half or three minute long, you know, pop song that could as e- just as easily ended up on like an Enough's Enough record. Like that's the other thing that I was hearing was like there is a definite influence in some of this stuff of 80s metal, but filtered in a really concise and specific way that you know this is a band that could have open for cheap trick played with enough's enough played with you know if they had been around at the time the raspberries or big star you know any of those bands but then at the you know the weird thing is that they had huge fans in guys like thurston moore from sonic youth scott wyland from still devil pilots and it's almost like they were so cool and so many people like them that they fall into the category of like a velvet underground where it's like Everybody has heard the name Velvet Underground, but only really five people have ever listened to them. But those five people, <laughs> those five people went out and started bands, and those bands went on to become huge. And it's I kind of feel like they this is like the you know 80s 90s equivalent for a lot of hard rock. I mean, I could imagine Rivers Cuomo hearing this and then going and writing the first Weezer's album because this is I mean this obviously not this specific album because it came out around the same time. But he had. Well, that's the. There's a pop culture obsession with a lot of what they do, and Weezer had a pop culture obsession. I mean, Buddy Holly, right there. That's a pop culture song, right? Yeah. Placed song. Um, The the problem with them, though, is that on that to that point is that so they start. You know, their history starts and they're very much entrenched in the true West Coast punk scene. I mean, they're part of the real, the real deal. They're integral in that. They kind of come out of that and they evolve. They, I think, initially are, are kind of a garage pop band that that kind of comes out of that by the the mid '80s. Then they roll into the Third Eye album when they get signed to a major. And that album is very, very polished and it's very clean. It doesn't have a whole lot of edge to it. It's it's very much in the vein of like a like if you simplify Jellyfish down and got rid of the prog elements. That's sort of what the Third Eye album is like with some you know late 80s metal guitar laced in there um, then they make this record which is pretty different so they they get a new drummer they get a new second guitar player um, they obviously 
are fans of, of what Nirvana's doing and, and, and bands of that early grunge movement. And they incorporate that into sort of the songwriting that, that they're comfortable with and the hooks that they've been writing for, at this point, a decade or close to it. And uh, they end up with something for the next two albums, which is this weird, not weird, but I think weird makes it sound bad. It's kind of a special mix of sort of this really loud, Black Sabbath-y, Nirvana raw guitar, thunderous drums, and super sugary hooks. And they only do that for about two albums. So it's kind of weird to think about like how they influence other people because so like Weezer probably would have only heard and I, we have no idea if Weezer heard Red Cross but they would have heard probably the, the 80s garage pop stuff they wouldn't have heard the sort of thicker you know mid 90s uh, albums right but yeah I agree that they're they're probably a, mu- a musician's darling you know the, in a lot of ways they're the I, band that every band, everybody in a band wants to be like, it's like, oh, wow, I want to write a hook that good. Damn, I want to be able to write a, a riff that good. And wow, listen to that intro. It's like, you know, it's like a wall of guitars. That's awesome. And like they have all the elements that everybody's striving when you're in a band, at least, you know, a, a pop rock or hard rock band with a little bit of edge. Like all the pieces that you're trying to put together, like they have those pieces already. I was trying to figure out, because you mentioned, you know, wall of guitars and... It's uh, the guitars are pretty epic sounding. Oh yeah, this. and I, I was trying to figure out how what exactly it was, whether they were like you know double and triple tracking things, and I stumbled upon a website called the Professional Recording Workshop, and there's a thread that st- was started actually in April of 2011 with John Agnello, who was the recording engineer and who mixed this album. Holy crap! And people started picking his brain, and he was answering questions about how they recorded the album. And he said the whole album is 24 tracks. It's drum, bass, two guitars, and a piano and B3 organ. And the piano and B3 organ are mostly on the same track because they didn't have enough tracks to separate them. So they mm-hmm. would actually put, if they had both of them, they would put piano on, you know, like for the first verse and chorus, and then the B3 wherever, you know, whatever they needed to do to squeeze those two keyboards on, they would do it. And I noticed that. They said he said it was tracked really fast. They didn't use any compression. They used, for the most part, cheap guitars. And here was the thing that I found really interesting: when they mic'd the guitars, they used three mics at once. They used a 57, an 87, and a 421, all pointed at the grill of the speaker. Hmm. Not that they were layering multiple guitars. It said he was using three mics every time he recorded the guitar. Right. Combining them to pick up different characteristics of the speaker. Yeah, and I found that really interesting because most of the time when you think of multi-tracking guitars, you're thinking, okay, I'm going to lay this down like seven times and get a really fat tone. But he's like, they're actually only recording it once, and it sounds like they did a lot of this stuff like pretty quickly because he said they were fast trackers. They didn't spend a lot of time actually in the studio, but they were just so good. They were so polished from practice that they could just come in and rip the songs off. Yeah, I mean, you get the sense listening to this album that this has all been worked out. Like, they're not making much of this up on the fly. And that's not in a bad way. It's just, like, you know that, you know, they're they're pretty good at, at this point in their career at writing songs. And they probably, you know, have nothing else to do but, you know, practice constantly. 
Um, this album, but that's for, I was just gonna say I watched a a live video from this era, and when you were starting to talk about the production, the one thing I did notice in the live video that I thought maybe was part of this was the second guitar player was using he was actually playing through two different amps. Hmm. Uh, he had two different full 412 stacks on on the stage, and they had two different heads. So as you were talking about it, I started thinking, well, maybe he's using, like he's playing the part once, but he's got two different guitar rigs and they're completely mic'd separately and then they mix them together. But uh, So we haven't really gotten into the, the specifics of the album. Mm -hmm. There was just a couple things that I wanted to mention and I see if they hit, hit with you in terms of um, some of the vocals. I got a real John Lennon sense from his vocals. Mm. Especially on Monolith, which is track three, it's a it's kind of a mid tempo-y song. The drums sound mm -hmm. huge. It's got the big ending, but it kind of reminded me, at least vocally, of when John Lennon would would really crank up the guitars, like on Revolution, mm -hmm. and and let his voice shred a little bit. Yeah, because he's got a little rasp to his voice that I really like. Yes. But it, it's kind of uh, it's interesting because it like Lennon. It's a bit nasaled on on the front, but then he really has a nice like little bit of rasp and character to it. So the two together, yeah, it's definitely it's it's unique for sure. The other song that I really wanted to point out was track eleven, Saragon. I think that's how you <laughs> pronounce it. It's the only song that's mixed. I guess you would say it's dual because half yep. half the mix is in the left ear with the drums and the bass, and then half the mix is in the right ear with the vocals, mm -hmm. guitar, and additional um, percussion. I found and it sounds almost exactly like a Beatles song. I mean, obviously, there's a huge Beatle influence across this whole album. Yeah, and there's no denying that they're they're writing, you know, heavy Beatles songs essentially, which is what mm -hmm. you know they're filtering Cheap Trick and, like we mentioned, yeah. those other '70s power pop bands. So, but I just thought that was weird that they just chose to do that on one song because I could hear them, you know, I haven't heard the other records, but I could hear them doing an entire album like that and doing it, you know, split ear like that. Uh, what's interesting is like so I got this album pretty much when it came out and, and liked it quite a bit and obviously I've set it down haven't listened to it in a while so pulling it back out I have a complete you know I'm listening to it in a completely different way and this time when I when I heard that song it totally clicked like oh they are completely aware that this is this song sounds exactly like the Beatles and they're actually recording it in a way that the early Beatles stuff was recorded in dual mono. Like they chose, you know what I mean? They're like, they have a, I think the thing that's another thing that's a knock against them. And it comes out in this song and a couple others, a lot of the, a lot of the, almost their whole catalog is that they have a sense of humor mm -hmm. and in America bands with a sense of humor have a really hard time. Like for whatever reason, American audiences or, record labels or radio or whoever the powers that be 
just don't get bands like rock bands with a sense of humor. They want their rock bands angry and serious. They don't want them cracking jokes right. or laughing or you know being clever. Um, you know, there, obviously there's few a few bands here and there that have been able to do that, but they're very very few and far between. And usually when they do make it, they're sort of seen as a novelty, and they don't stick stick around very long. Well, they become um, like you know you're either like Bloodhound Gang or you know some kind of joke band like that. But they're not just making you know cracking jokes. They're like making sarcastic and wry observations. Uh, in, mm-hmm. in track four, I think the first line of the song, he's he's comparing um, excuse the language here, folks. He says uh, something about comparing a missile to a cock. <laughs> Why is a missile look like a cock? Why is a missile? Why is the world so fucked up? never hear neil young in a political song comparing um missile to a penis Just, <laughs> and i love neil young but he's never gonna go that route and mm-hmm. they do and it sounds completely apropos to the song and to the to the music that they're playing and maybe because there is a touch of like glam you can get away with lyrics that are a little more edgy and uh, push the envelope a little bit more but the only nitpick I have of this album, and I can't believe I'm going to say this, it rocks so much from set track to track that I kind of started to lose track of where I was. <laughs> the album. You were assaulted by all the rock and hooks? Well, there's really, I mean, there's nothing slow. They, they do some halftime stuff, like on track six, it's, it's halftime on Huge Wonder. Um, mm-hmm. But it's still rocking. I mean, there's no oh, yeah. let up. Um, there's in a song on here that doesn't rock, and then you, you you know usually you have an album like this, and maybe you do the last song you'd have an acoustic song or something like that to mellow out on the last song. Actually, that's like the punkiest song on the record, um, After School Special. Even though it has a mm-hmm. piano intro, the when they get to the chorus, that's definitely like what I think is more of their punkier stuff in, ter- in terms of what they were sounded like earlier. Yeah, in a weird way, I I, I agree. And I, when I was listening to that song, I sort of that song is more um, indicative of what their what their true self is. I think their albums before this are more like that type of material. As I'm sitting here listening to this, I'm just like, I'm imagining, like, just kids coming home from school, like cranking this song when their you know parents are still at work and just 
running around the house like just you know going crazy you know the song blare and it's just like this exuberant fun just explosion of energy but you know at the same time it's you know it's hooky and melodic and you know it's just they're able to capture just that sense of fun i mean in a way that like you know a band like queen sort of you know is able to have a sense of humor and get serious at times you know there's songs like like you mentioned on here that sort of touch on some political things and make observations but then there's other moments like that song where um after school special where it's just like it's just pure fun like we're just gonna go crazy (laughs) you know just running around like we're 12 years old and you know just play a garage a fun garage punk rock song um so yeah it's definitely it, it, it misses any sort of slow moments for sure and quiet moments which is perfectly fine i mean i just i was listening to it on headphones and i was just sort of i listened to it probably three times today at work and i was sort of where am i on this album where what track is this because i there was sort of every song has a huge gigantic guitar riff and pounding mm-hmm. drums and i was just that was it's not really a knock it's just um, well, they all they all do tend to start on this album. They just tend to start the songs in a similar way. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think my criticism of it um, would be they're a little, just a little bit out of character on this album. And sometimes that I like that it produces some pretty interesting stuff. But other times, it you know it doesn't quite fit them. It sounds like they're maybe trying a little too hard to be relevant. Or, you know, to be of the time, which, you know, the one of the, the great things about this band is that, in a way, they're timeless. I mean, these guys were wearing, like, psychedelic 70s clothes and bell-bottoms in the mid and late 80s, which, that was about as uncool as you could dress at that time. Oh, yeah. They legitimately wore that stuff and didn't give a shit. Like, that's just the way that they were, you know. Now it doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but then it was like, who are these like <laughs> i don't know if they're twins or not but they look like twins at least they didn't at that time it was like, Who no are they're these a couple dudes? years apart but yeah I, I can see what you're saying they look very similar and they're dressed alike and um but it, you know the they're kind of timeless so on this album they kind of uh you know they, they dip their toes they, i think at times it sounds a lot like nirvana to me and just in terms of like how fun like it sounds like dave Grohl playing drums i mean there's there's at least a handful of songs in here where it's like you could tell somebody that's Dave Grohl and they would totally believe you right um and some of the riffs are you know on the heavier side of what Nirvana did this the album that came after this is probably it's very much in this in this vein but it, it stretches a little it doesn't stretch quite as far so that's, it's a little um, true to their true self that's show world show world yeah and we'll probably get to that down the road the, the other albums that didn't come out uh in the 90s I'll be checking those out on my own, the, the early stuff like Born Innocent. But we'll definitely get to the other um, 90s stuff. And those albums are, those are on Spotify. Unfortunately, the two albums, uh, this album and Show World, are really not available. They're out of print, I... and they are impossible to find. Yeah, I, I, I did a Google search for Show World MP3s and was able to find it. Um, it seems like albums that are basically out of print, you can, you can kind of get lucky and find those on the internet without too much trouble. But, uh, 
Unfortunately, I think that's the only way people are going to hear this if they if they don't already have it. And it's it, like I said, this this lineup, these two albums, you know, I think from um, it's a very different sound. Um, the songwriting's pretty much the same, but just the sound of the band is pretty different than the other stuff. So I'm I'm a, I'm a fan of this stuff over the Third Eye material and the uh, the stuff before that. One of the things that's on this that you touched on a little bit on the recording that I wanted to mention was how good the keyboards were. Mm-hmm. And I think that that recording technique you talked about actually helped them quite a bit because it makes the keyboards, you know, sort of play their part and get out of the way. And you can hear like within the songs, they'll switch from, you can hear the switch. They'll go from like a Rhodes to a piano, back to a, a Rhodes or a, a Rhodes to a piano. And then they'll go to an organ part and then they won't play. You know, so it just they bring it in really, really well, and it, it, uh, the combination of adding the keyboards to the chorus, and then, uh, you know, like most good bands do, adding another vocal, usually a pretty strong harmony or a couple harmonies, is usually what you know every chorus is made of on this album, which is not a bad thing. But I really uh, listen to it now. I really can pull up, hear the keyboards clearly, and thought they really added a ton. I knew you were gonna like this album. And I, I probably, I, I could have uh, probably written or, or predicted what you were going to say for most hey. of this. No, I just, this, this seems like right up your alley. I, I, you know, I didn't remember that you had given it to me, so, but I, from the first time listening to it, I was like, oh, this is totally a J album. So I Well, got it's you. funny. It's like, uh, you know, I do like it a lot, but if it wasn't for the show, I probably wouldn't have pulled it out, you know, and listened to it again. It's just like you sort of move forward and you forget about things. You forget how good they were. Right. Or you just don't have time to give them a second chance after you've moved on and you're listening to, you know, I'm, I'm into getting new music. I'm into discovering stuff I didn't, I've never heard before. So going back and revisiting, I definitely uh, appreciate it in a whole different way uh, than I did when I first heard it. And I think I re- sort of realized that it was kind of an influence on me as a musician too, just what they were doing and, um, like I said, a lot of musicians, they, they got all the pieces that everybody's trying to to put together. Um, they, they can kind of do them all. So. Well, speaking of moving on, we need to move on. We're done. That's it. We've covered Red Cross. Breaking happy, up. I'm happy we finally got to this because I, I, this, was in my, this was in my blind spot for a long time. So I'm, I'm thrilled that we got to review this album and... Um, now I can say I actually know some Red Cross. So I think that's. You it. finally have cred. Congratulations. I have some cred when it comes to speaking of late '80s, early '90s power pop from California that strongly influenced. Okay. All right, Jay. Anything else? We're out. We're out. All right. Thanks everybody for listening, and we'll be back next week with another review and another episode of Dig Me Out. Want to leave feedback? Join the conversation about this episode. Visit digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. All I need is the one.